Hello everybody and welcome to yet another fun-filled and action-packed episode of Poddywood. I am one of your co-hosts, the ever-fantastically super-powered Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Well, I'm just Andrew Roger Carson. I didn't have time to think of a fantastic introduction. I know, that's my job. So anyway, how have you, how have you been this past week, Steve? I know you've been busy. Yes, very, very, very busy, because uh, this week we had to do homework, not just on one film, but also on two films. We'll get to the second one in a bit. The first one, though, was last week's What's in the Box, which was 1983's Stephen King adaptation, The Dead Zone. Directed by David Cronenberg. Yes, and it's a very, very subdued film for David Cronenberg. It was. It was very definitely the, uh, a switch in direction because around that time, I can't remember, was Scanners before or after The Dead Zone? I can't remember, but a part of me wants to say it was just after. Okay, that probably makes sense. I know The Brood was before, mm-hmm. and you know this was a full-on Canadian production starring Christopher Walken in probably one of his... Most uh, normal roles. Yeah, I guess call Christopher it. Walken and everybody does the impression, but no one can do it. That sounds more like John Travolta, but never mind. <laughs> um, Christopher Walken is a weird choice for this because on the one hand, yeah, he does have that kind of distant, uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, emotionally affected that uh, the role of Johnny Smith needs. But at the same time, he's not. he never really came across well as a uh, romantic interest. But anyway, let's just get the plot out of the way with, if you haven't seen it, it's about a guy called Johnny Smith who gets into a car accident and wakes up and he finds out that he has these psychic powers. He's able to predict uh, future events. Uh, It starts off with his nurse and he touches a hand and he realises that her daughter's trapped in a fire. So she goes off and lo and behold, she's trapped in a fire. He manages to find the doctors that's treating him. He manages to find his mother who was lost during the Second World War. And the whole rest of the movie is actually rather is rather subdued as well. It's all very, very flat shots. The lighting is very... I think there's only like one scene where there's like a colour to it, really. Everything is snow and kind of black and white, and it's all very subdued. It's all very 80s Cronenberg, is basically the way to say it. But, I mean, the cast in it, the supporting cast... Uh-huh. Outstanding. You got oh, yeah. Tom Tom Skerritt. You have Herbert Long, who I was disappointed wasn't in in it more. Actually, who Herbert Tom Long? Skerritt. Oh, Tom Skerritt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He, he did kind of appear then disappear. You have Anthony Zerb and of course Martin Sheen doing the greatest pre Donald Trump impression. I think you can get. In a <laughs> oh movie. God, yes. Oh I'm God, sorry. Yes. I'm sorry to mention that name. I know it's all best put in past tense and you know never mentioned again. But, you know, I think as soon as we were, when we were going through that presidency, I think more allusion to the Martin Sheen style president uh, in this prediction scene was put out there constantly. And even a fantastic small little cameo from a good friend of mine, Roman Estevez, of course, Martin Sheen's son. As the the photographer at the end. Yes. Yes. Um, Thank you, IMDb, because I honestly couldn't tell because he's got the camera pressed right up against his face. It could have been anyone. So there's a lot going on in the movie. I think it's one of those movies, like you say, it's very, very 80s in terms of the style. It's one of those few movies I think would really benefit from a more up-to-date adaptation. Uh, I know there was one in around about 2002. Yes, they did a TV series with Anthony Michael Hall. But I think it's one of those that would, I think it would benefit from getting redone. Yeah, especially today. Yeah. Yeah. And 
with the amount of Stephen King properties that are suddenly seeing another resurgence, uh, obviously you've had uh, the sequel to The Shining in Doctor Sleep, which was a really, really well-received movie. And uh, you're getting a lot more interest in Stephen King adaptations being redone. I know The Stand has been redone as a series recently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the potential is there. I think it would be a an interesting adaptation brought up to speed to today. Yeah, I do think, though, that they need to kind of temper some of the Stephen King eccentric narration. There's always this weird escalation in his books. It's like you look at it and you've got a scary story about a monster clown that wants to eat children, and that's fine, except later on it turns out he's a giant spider monster and there's a turtle that created the universe. It's like, no, 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 just bring it down, bring it down. Let's keep it just about... It and in this one, you've got everything going with Johnny and the relationship with uh, with his now ex girlfriend. Uh, the kissing scene, the little romantic scene that comes out of nowhere, um, which is very very weird. She has no problem with it either. Oh no, it's just it just throws herself at it. One scene, it's like no, I can't. I've got a husband and a kid. Next bit, it's like okay, I'm taking my top off but, for you. Yes, come but on. I've just decided to come round and get nasty while I can for old times' sake. While my 18 month old infant's in the next room. Yeah, that, that, how very <laughs> how very council estate of her. Yeah, but that then then ties into one thing because in the UK we have an age rating system mostly, um, and when this was released, it was an 18. And it was then re-released as a 15 with some things cut, such as the deputy sheriff's um, suicide with the scissors. But looking at it in its full glory, I have no idea why this was an 18 at all. Well, the BBFC were very, uh, very tight-fisted back in the day. No more than with Warner Brothers movies that were released. Mm. Where, to be honest, the first time that I saw a lot of the movies that were butchered by the BBFC from Warner Brothers was when I was in the States, especially Under Siege mm. uh, and, pretty, well, pretty much anything Steven Seagal was in. So, yeah, the BBFC has got a lot to answer for. Yes, uh, and unfortunately, we saw a version of uh, The Last Boy Scout that Bruce Willis was in. But either way, <laughs> let's uh, move on. We are celebrating five special anniversaries this week, so I guess we best cue some music. Watch them again all of the time Or we get them on Prime for free But we only know how old they are When we learn their anniversary Yeehaw! That is so country. Do you know that that's actually supposed to be a riff on the um, Robin Hood and Little John song from the Disney movie? Yeah, oodle-lally-oodle-lally-gally word a day. I love that film. It's it so good. Hang on a minute. Someone decided to call me, you absolute bastard. <laughs> okay, oh, that's a it. point off. That is a point off. You know what? This is the one time that I didn't do it. Well, you know what? And it was Pete as well, but I don't care what kind of emergency you're in. I'm not answering it. So let me let me pick that up again and mute my phone properly. <laughs> okay. This is all staying in, by the way. It is staying in. It doesn't even bother coming out anymore. So anyway, we are celebrating five anniversaries of movies that were released uh, around this time period, particularly in the UK. They were probably released earlier in other places. Mm -hmm. Can you believe, Steve, mm -hmm. 40 years ago, Superman 2 was released? Mm. You know what? I think it's probably out of all of them, Superman 2 is probably the one that I've seen the least. Which version? Oh, it, that I think it's the original cut. It's not the, the Richard Donner cut. I've not actually seen that, I don't think. Okay, I, I think I've seen the, the Richard Donner cut when it first came out. 
And uh, I will remember, obviously, the original the uh, theatrical version that was by a guy. I'm sure our guest is going to pull me up on later for not getting his name right. But I'm sure it's along the lines of Richard Fleischer, probably. Richard Lester. Oh, hear that ghostly voice coming yes. in. Who could okay. that be? I don't know. <laughs> Get back in your room, Bill. We'll let you out when it's time for you to talk. <laughs> but yes, 40 years ago, Superman <laughs> 2 was released. And, uh, you know, this made great use of Terran Stamp. As I know you were talking the other week that Michael Shannon did the the best version of Zod. But come on, this is Terrence Stamp. Yeah. Yeah, Terrence Stamp played a completely different one. Terrence Stamp was more almost like the, the Ming the Merciless, the very, very stoic kind of, I will rule you. With Whereas Michael Shannon was, if you don't bow, I'm going to break you. Neck. Very true, yeah, and uh, and I, I think more people prefer Superman the movie, of course, myself mm. included. And I know that you also had a bit of issue uh, with Superman the other week, saying that obviously Henry Cavill is the Superman for you. Yeah, I mean, I did grow up on Christopher Reeve, and I thought he is a fantastic Superman. But obviously, you've got to move on. And if you are going to do an updated version of a character like Superman, I think Henry Cavill is absolutely perfect for the role yes and man of steel basically is superman 2 with a bigger budget and a lot more rubble yeah so all of you cobra kai fans out there you'll be pleased to know that 35 years ago today the karate kid 2 was out karate kid also what the karate kid also no the karate kid part 2 ah you missed the joke never mind carry on yeah yeah man it was very vague (laughs) it was shit that's what it was and i wasn't listening but yes, Karate Kid 2, which is the one where they go to um, Mr. Miyagi's home country, home village, sorting out his beefs. And the only thing I can genuinely remember from that movie is the song that was pretty much everywhere and incredibly annoying by Peter Satara, Glory of Love. Mm, I can't quite picture it for some reason. I don't know no. why. But... Um, the Karate Kids had this major comeback with Cobra Kai. This is the only thing where yeah. a series has been dropped only to get picked up by Netflix and is even more successful. Well, I still actually think that the success of Cobra Kai came from How I Met Your Mother. She, she never mentioned it. No, well, in How I Met Your Mother, Barney completely misinterprets the Karate Kid and he's all behind Johnny Lawrence. And so they get they get Daniel Zabka to come in and basically play himself. But then you've got Ralph Macchio as kind of like an arsehole version of himself. And if you look at what they did with Cobra Kai, that's pretty much what they've got. You've got Danny Lawrence being a more relatable guy, and and um, and um, what's his name, Ralph <laughs> Ralph Macchio. You see, you can tell how much I was paying attention, can't you? You can. I don't even think you've seen the movie. Let's move on to twenty-five yeah, on. years. So twenty-five years ago, around this week, we had Michael Bay's The Rock. Oh, now that I have seen, I love that movie. I think it's. Brilliant. Are people going to say this, and I'm going to be very controversial about it, is this Sean Connery's last great role? I think it might have been, because The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was around about 2001-2002, and that was pretty much it then for him. So this yeah, I think, was... I think Finding Forrester was his last movie, but he, he did have a string of, of films that didn't receive so well after The Rock, and I think The Rock was his last major appreciated role. Welcome to The Rock. And it might actually be Michael Bay's best movie. Mm. It's probably him the most tempered 
Yeah. You know, because yes. it still needs that level of crazy actionness, but he doesn't kind of go too far with it. It's certainly not Transformers level idiocy. Yeah. And in a total break from normality, Sean Connery is playing a Scottish guy. I know. It's 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 outstanding. I was shocked. I, I didn't know he had that range. <laughs> so let's move on quickly. We have twenty years ago around this time, Evolution was released. Nah. Now, you as a, a Ghostbusters fan, I thought you would have appreciated the Ivan Reitman kind of spiritual follow-up to the Ghostbusters No, movies. I did also. I think it was like one of David Duchovny's first movies after leaving the X-Files. Like after leaving the X-Files. I know he did stuff like Californication earlier. But it's just kind of a meh movie. It feels like a lot of it's missing. That's the best way that I can think of to describe it. And the, I don't think the chemistry between... Um, Julianne Moore and David Duchovny. No, no, I don't mean between those two. Who's the who's the fellow who was his mate? Oh, Orlando. Orlando Jones. Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Between the two of them, I didn't buy it. I don't know. It just wasn't right. I didn't. I didn't feel it for me. Fair enough. It. It's a film. Yeah. And let's finally, ten years ago today, one of David Zucker's favorite films, Bridesmaids, was released. I haven't seen it. <clears throat> Oh, well, it's in the box. Bridesmaids was really the film that got Melissa McCarthy off the ground. She was one of the supporting characters in it. It was a, mm-hmm. a Kristen Wiig movie, and it is fabulous. It is hilarious, and I'm kind of glad that when you've got movies kind of like the, the Hangover trilogy, you know, that the Hangover one we, we can tolerate. Bridesmaids mm. is an equivalent of that for the ladies, and it is absolutely hilarious. Okay. And that is our anniversaries for this week. And go and check them out or go and revisit them or whatever. Now, I'm, I'm going to let our guest out. <laughs> Are we <laughs> sure the internet's ready for it? The internet is has been building to this for hours. <laughs> okay. This week, it, it marks the 10th anniversary of the Ryan Reynolds superhero movie, Green Lantern, which it has a rather checkered history. Times not been kind to it, nor has its star Ryan Reynolds, who's openly discarded the film in negative ways, uh, including mocking it through his much more successful superhero writing as Deadpool recently. Now, prior to this movie being released, a Green Lantern movie was kind of in the throes of development since, I believe, 1997, the same year the not critically loved but admittedly camp Batman and Robin was released. Uh. Now... Seeing as absolutely anyone can add whatever they want to trivia sections of IMDb or their main Wikipedia page, we wanted to cover this anniversary by talking with an executive at Warner Brothers during those years to wade through what is true and what is outright bullshit. Green Lantern apparently was not a successful movie. Apparently it took uh, in a box office of $219.9 million against its budget of $200 million. We'll find out if that's accurate. We've not had any sequel or reboot in the years since, but we want to discuss the story of the project without shitting on it. Uh, Hear what's true, hear what's made up, and if this really was as bad as it was portrayed uh, online and out there in the world. And to do this, we invited a senior VP of Warner Brothers at that time, Bill Daly, to discuss this with us. Bill, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well. Is that the best intro you've ever had? (laughs) Certainly the longest. (laughs) Usually my intros involve um, discussions of Harry Potter and uh, The Matrix, Troy, you know, movies like that. Not usually Green Lantern. This is the first time anybody's ever expressed any interest in Green Lantern. So I guess I should be honored. Yes, we will take that exclusive from you, Bill. (laughs) 
So, Bill, thank you for joining us. It's, it's always great to kind of have you come on these podcasts with us. And this is your first appearance on Partywood. Obviously, there's going to be more down the line for mm-hmm. stuff like Harry Potter and oh, Troy. Don't threaten me. And The Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> and The Matrix. And all these other movies that you're glad to have on your IMDb. But you were at Warner Brothers um, from before the notion of a Green Lantern movie was planned in 1997, right through to its release. And it surprises me looking into the history that the studio approached, apparently approached people like Kevin Smith shortly after his time developing the script for the infamous uh, Superman no, Reborn project. That's not strictly true. It's um, they approach all kinds of people. What happens is with like Kevin Smith. I don't think it was Warner Brothers that approached Kevin Smith on Superman. I think it was John Peters. And what happened was that Kevin Smith um, was this very hot young director who had done clerks for no money at all. And that is always a huge appeal for the studios because they get a movie where potentially could spiral out of control. And they try to get someone who they think has the ability to contain the costs. And they approach them and say, hey, well, what do you think about this? And they'll open up the, you know, the list of what's in development and ask them, um, do any of these things interest you? So um, unless Kevin Smith has anything to say about it, um, I'm guessing that that's probably the way it went down with Kevin Smith on, on Green Lantern. I don't think anybody actually approached him and said, we've got Green Lantern for you, and made a pitch. I don't think anybody actually made a pitch specifically about Green Lantern. Well, can you remember when the first uh, notion to make a Green Lantern was starting up? How far from the release of Batman and Robin was this? It's under- it's trying to understand the process, okay? When Superman, when they did Superman in 1978, it was released in 78, so they were probably developing it long before then. It, it became a larger thing, opening up all the DC product, you know, all these different titles from DC uh, and what their potential for box office was. And since Superman did so fabulously well, I'm sure they started looking at everything that, that they had. So to say that they've been working on it since 1997 isn't strictly true. I mean, it was on the list for things that were in deep development. I did a little bit of research knowing that we were talking about this. Um, it first appeared on my radar on the 9th of July, 2008. Um, we have a production status report that would go through the studio um, to inform everybody of what exactly what that is, you know, the, what the status of all the productions are. Green Lantern first appeared on the production status report on the 9th of July, 2008. That was the first time I became aware that we were starting to do it. And that was based on a script that had been submitted on the 20th of June, 2008. And there was no start date. They just it was just up there. Everything on it was to be determined. Nobody had been attached to it. No release date. It was just Green Lanterns up here. This is the script date. And and then that's usually the cue for all of us to go call the story department and get a copy of the script to so that we can have input into the budgeting and scheduling process. It didn't really start to move until Greg Berlanti was attached to it. He got attached to it, not immediately around july 9th but he sometime after that so apparently there were a few rumblings about green lantern before that time so a lot of these are probably just internet rumors such as tarantino being approached to do a comedy version with jack black no let me let me tell you how those rumors start somebody will say we're having trouble getting this script that's always the thing getting a really good script 
and then they think about, okay, so we can't get, we're not getting anything just straight pulling from the comic books. Can we make this a comedy? Can we get somebody like Jack Black? And that's, that's literally how those rumors start. Somebody will say, can we get Jack Black to do this? Honest to God, that's how it starts. And unfortunately, somebody will say that in a room that's got a dozen people in it. And suddenly um, people think that, oh, Jack Black is being considered for this. So this is just kind of like random spitballing, which has been picked up and then yeah. found its way outside. Yeah, it's it's somebody creaked open the, the writer's room and, and something spilled out. Apparently in 2007, behind the scenes, one of the first positive reactions to a Green Lantern script was when writer and actor Corey Reynolds developed either a treatment or a script in June 2007. However, it was kind of reported that Warner Brothers dropped this early concept and in October of that year, they hired Greg Bolanti to co-write and direct and co-write it with Michael Green and Mark Guggenheim. Do you know what Warner Brothers were kind of looking for to kind of make this shift if it did happen that way? Uh, I don't. Um, because that was it was still in deep development, so it, it didn't come to my attention until July 2008. If the stuff appears too early on our production status report, people will start going down the rabbit hole trying to prep for it, and then you find yourself prepping stuff that's never going to go. So it may be that the people in creative development were having discussions and meetings and looking at concepts and stuff like that. But that's not anything that ever came to my attention. No, well, apparently the uh, the script leaked onto the internet in 2008. Uh, what was the fallout from this? Did it cause any tension or was it just kind yes. of... Yes, well, uh, that was always an issue. When that happened, um, they started watermarking all the scripts. So every script I got after that had my name emblazoned across the uh, across every page as a watermark. It might have actually been before that. And the thing is, we had been bragging for some time that we never had a breach like this, you know. And then suddenly, <laughs> there there we are, you know, um, the Screen Lantern script. I'm not even sure which version of the script it was that got out. It might have been an earlier version. And my guess is that someone was recycling it or something like that, and, and someone saw it and took it. I mean, that's my guess. When we had versions of scripts that we weren't going to use, rather than shred them, they would send them to the print department, who would then cut them into squares and use them as notepads. Because it, it wasn't until later that we were starting to print things on both sides of the paper. So there was always um, one side of the of the paper that your odd number pages were always going to be blank. So they would cut them into squares and make notepads out of them. So if you so if you scribbled a note to somebody and someone flipped it over, they'd see the portion of a script or something in the background, which would be a novelty for someone if you were sending a note. If I were sending a note to you guys, and you looked at the back, I'm sure I would get a phone call or an email asking. What was that paper you were sending me the note on? But that, that was how we would recycle stuff. But then security became a paramount issue when we started making DVDs because the, the pirates were trying to get a hold. There was a, a huge pirate operation coming out of Russia, and they were trying to get copies of scripts so they could do their subtitling in advance of stealing our movies. So um, we started shredding scripts at that point. So the one that got out there, I'm not sure that it was the real thing. You know, of course, the, whoever released it is going to say it was the real thing. Most of the stuff out there is just bullshit. 
So apparently by the end of 2008, Warner Brothers were gearing up to start pre-production. But in February of 2009, Greg Berlanti was off the project and then Martin Campbell was hired to direct. What do, what do you remember about this period and that kind of replacement? Well, Greg was also developing Life as We Know It. And the studio brought him in on an overall deal. So he was developing television as well. So he had this, he had this, and he was sort of attached to it because he had written a script. And it was one of those things where, you know, I wrote this, and I think you can relate to this, Andrew. I wrote the script. I'd really like to direct it. I think that was the deal. But the movie languished while he was the guy that was um, supposed to be directing it. The script was always an issue. As I go back through my production status reports, it lists all the, the key dates and, and then it lists issues. And script was an issue even after they were in production. Script was always an issue. And I don't know specifically what the issue was. Nobody ever asked my input on the scripts, except, you know, can we do this at a reasonable price? You know, is there an alternate way of, of executing this? That's usually when, um, when they would ask me about a script. But Greg was doing Life as We Know It. And suddenly the cast for that film was available. Ryan Reynolds' availability was was becoming more narrow because Green Lantern needed to get started because he had other commitments that he had to do. So Greg was out February 18th, 2009 is the first notation I have that Greg was no longer doing it. In the meantime, Martin Campbell had done uh, Edge of Darkness. He delivered Edge of Darkness to us. Everybody liked it. Everybody liked him. Mel Gibson was in that, and he had a relationship with the studio. He spoke very highly of Martin. We all knew Martin's reputation because he had done the James Bond movies and he had done the Zorro movie, um, and we were anxious to work with him and to do something. And I personally, I, I loved Martin. I, I loved working with Martin Campbell. Uh, he was great. So he came in. Uh, Greg was off, and then Martin was on within a week. Martin was attached to this to this movie. But with Martin came a new start date. When Greg came off the picture, he came off the middle of February. We were we were supposed to have started February 1st, okay? We hadn't started it, and he was still attached to it for another two weeks. They just couldn't get it started. It was supposed to shoot in Australia because of tax things. Yeah. Um, and Australia has several different tax incentives that you can work with, and it just didn't work out. It just It, it, it just didn't go his way. But then he had the other movie that he wanted to do, and suddenly they all became available. So he jumped off the one onto the other. So when Martin came on, suddenly we had a new start date of uh, September 14th. The, uh, in the meantime, we had a new script that came in the middle of uh, December of 2008, which was, I think, longer than the original script he did. So I have notes in, in um, my production status reports where I mentioned the number of pages because um, that was always an issue, bringing in the page count down. They only ever really brought it down two pages. I mean, when they greenlit this movie, it was 127 pages. And when they finally started it, it was 125. They brought two pages out. So they were never really good at uh, cutting the script down to where they wanted it. So Martin came on. Martin's a New Zealander. He was happy to work in Australia. And everything was copacetic at that point. The release of Green Lantern was set for December 2010, and as you said, things were changed because of the uh, the appointment of Martin Campbell. Was there anything else that caused it, 
the release to be pushed back to June 2011? Was there issues behind the scenes? Was it extension for special effects, for example, things like that? Oh, well, there's always that problem. When Martin came on, they, they moved the start date to November 2009, and that was as of March. So Martin came on late February, early March. Start date, they didn't even have a specific date at first. It was early November 2009. And within a week or so, the start date was going to be November 9th. As they set the start date, that's when they brought Dion Beebe on as the, uh, as the DP um, for it. And then within six weeks, they had moved again. It was going to start now in February 2010, still in Australia. And then a month later, it was going to be, or two months, I, I think they set that in May. And then by July of 2008, the start date was uh, March 15th, 2010. Still Australia, 125 pages, and an, and a shoot schedule of 95 days. I mean, that is enormous. That's, a 95-day production schedule is absolutely enormous. And it sort of sat that way for a couple of months. And um, the Australia deal went south for whatever reasons. I don't know if it became crew availability. There's, al- there's always factors you have to bring in whether this the tax structure is still in place, whether the stage space is available, who you're going to bring on to do your visual effects, whether the cast and your key crew can even work in Australia or whether they want to. But by the, I want to say, certainly by October, November, we were talking about New Orleans. Two things, New Orleans and then 3D. <laughs> 3D came in, <laughs> you know, and, and that wasn't anything the studio necessarily wanted to do um, because 3D was was a frightening prospect for most directors, including Martin. Um, he didn't want to shoot it in 3D. It, it was foreign to him. He was willing to go along with 3D as long as they would do a 3D conversion. So, But 3D looms large in my notes for a long time. And eventually the... the um, the film became known as Green Lantern 3D. I mean, that that was built into the title. I guess that you know to make no no mistake about their intention to do it in 3D. It was greenlit even before we decided to go 3D. Um, the 3D budget, in fact, became a separate line item. Okay, and you and you talked about a 200 million dollar budget. It was more than that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you a specific. I have I ha- I'm actually looking at the specific number right now. Um, it was more than 200 million, and at the end of the day, the movie was 30 million dollars over budget. Okay, well, you can't have a superhero movie without a superhero. So, how extensive was the search for the role of the Green Lantern? Um, who else auditioned along with uh, Ryan Reynolds? Uh, you know, I barely remember that. In a blink of an eye, it was Ryan Reynolds. And I barely remember any kind of search or discussions or anything. I don't know. And Greg Berlanti stayed on as as producer. So I don't know if, if Ryan Reynolds had been the first choice for Greg. And then eventually Donald DeLine came on as um, as a producer. So I don't know if, if they were kind of set on Ryan Reynolds. Perhaps they had a relationship with Ryan that we don't know about. Maybe they worked with him on something else. I mean, I don't know. But in the blink of an eye... It was Ryan Reynolds, and he was the only person from that point on. He was the very first cast member to appear on our production status report. In January of 2010, 
Apparently, a crew member posted on her blog that the movie had been greenlit the day before and that filming was commencing within 10 weeks. And this was prior to any official statement of production by Warner Brothers, apparently. Uh, how did this kind of personal promotion sit with the studio at the time? I don't know. I don't remember that. Whoever wrote that was telling the truth. I was notified that it was greenlit on the 13th of January, 2009, and it was greenlit and moved to pre-production. We we have a in our production status report, you know, things are in development and we don't hear that much about them. And then they're pending and then they become pre-production. So on the 13th of uh, January, it was in pre-production and the start date got fixed onto the 15th of March. And that was, I mean, that dated back to July of 2009. And that had to do with uh, cast availability. I mean, specifically, probably Ryan Reynolds. And then they never pulled off of that date. Once that date was set, they stayed on it. So whoever wrote that was telling the truth. Well, in July of 2010, Ryan Reynolds separated his shoulder. Yeah. Shooting some of the uh, the action scenes. Did this cause uh, much concern for the progress of the movie? Was there any talk of replacing him or was no, it just... No, no. It wasn't that severe. Separating your shoulder is not that severe an injury. I mean, it did... There, there was a, an insurance claim that loomed very large for the, over the rest of the production. Um, he was seriously hurt, but there's other things to work on. So they were able to, to work around that. The show ended up going... No, eight days over. It was 103 days at the, when they finally, the final production report was day 103. It started out as 95, got moved to 100. Um, so they were over. And I suspect they were over because of uh, Ryan's injury. Okay, well, Ryan has went on to say that the movie was uh, very frustrating and According to him, I followed the classic studio story of having a cool poster but no script or direction, so let's start shooting right. anyway. Now, uh, it's documented here that there was building kind of pressure between Ryan and the director Martin Campbell during production. Was this evident to the people at the studio? Was there any intervention made to kind of smooth things out? No, I wasn't aware of it. It wasn't until I read that myself just this week. I, I wasn't aware of any tension between them. It was a hard shoot. I mean, movies like this are always hard, and tensions always rise. You should see me when I'm in the middle of production, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> I will. See, you should see me when I'm doing location scouting, you know? No, there may have been tension, you know, but it was never a serious issue. Okay, Green Lantern ended principal photography in August 2010. And then went into post-production, and Jeff Johns is on record as saying that the post-effects heavy scale was daunting. So was this movie considered early for a 3D conversion or a late choice, such as Clash of the Titans was? Um, no, Clash of the Titans was way late. Clash of the Titans, they decided to go 3D, and I, I think Andrew has heard this story from me. We decided to go 3D with that very late in the process. We had We had screened the director's cut, and then we went out to an audience to screen it. And it was either Scottsdale, Arizona, or it was in Pasadena. I vividly remember the cinema. But they, but in the dark, they all look alike. All the ones with stadium seating look alike. So um, I do remember it. And I remember myself watching and thinking, why didn't we do this in 3D? Because the composition, all of the composition that the director had done, really lent itself to 3D. And why didn't we do this one in 3D? And I think Jeff Robinoff must have been thinking the same thing uh, because we we would screen the thing for an audience. We would get cards, we'd do a focus group. And then the next morning, we would assemble at about 
10 or 11 in the morning and we'd go through all the notes um, and our own experience and we would talk about what needed to be done, um, whether we really are done and how we're going to move forward with it. And Jeff came into the meeting and it was in his conference room and he said, is there a 3D version of this movie? And I was flabbergasted because I was thinking the same thing. I had been thinking that. And, um, and he had gone to my boss, Mark Solomon at the time and asked him, Mark, you know, can, can we do this in 3D? And Mark said, yes, you can, you can do a 3D conversion, but that's all you're going to get is a 3D conversion. It's not going to be especially good. And of course people hear what they want to hear. So Jeff, (laughs) Jeff was hearing, yes, you can do it in 3D. And I imagine he thought he was going to get real 3D instead of um, the sort of the faux 3D. The the company that did that had been had approached us several months earlier and they were nagging us constantly. They were saying, we can do 3D in the same way you would do a digital intermediate. If we build it into our, our algorithms and it'll just put it out and you can you can do a 3D conversion in three weeks, which is quite a statement to make. Okay. And Mark Solomo was right. I mean, it was crappy 3D. But I have to tell you, in defense of that, we took a movie that was, we're talking about Clash of the Titans. We took a movie that was totally, totally in the bin, you know, just get rid of this thing. It's not worth spending another minute on to um, the biggest box office thing that weekend. And the 3D conversion more than paid for itself. So it was good for us financially, but it was, um, I think it, I think it was bad for 3D conversions in general because it was so bad. And and I know other, Jeffrey Katzenberg's um, specifically um, over at DreamWorks was complaining bitterly about it and was talking to the press and it was back and forth and everybody was upset about it. I'm, Dick Zanuck was in my office and he was absolutely beside himself with Jeffrey's antics complaining about it. And, and I, remember, I remember Dick going, you know, my father hated Jack Warner. But he never, ever went to the press and talked about, you know, the bad movies that were coming out of Warner Brothers. And this is just unprecedented. This is awful. You know, and finally, Barry Meyer, who was the chairman of Warner Brothers, and Alan Horn, who was the number two, and Dick Zanuck contacted David Geffen and told him to get Jeffrey Katzenberg there. And they, they had a conference call and told Jeffrey, enough is enough. You don't want us going after your next movie that you do. And I, and just in a, a, a funny sort of ironic aside, Jeffrey Katzenberg then hires that same company to do his next 3D thing. I mean, irony of ironies, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but he's not the first hypocritical person to come through the doors here, right? Very true. So what instigated the reshoots on Green Lantern in January 2011 in Los Angeles? Mostly visual effects. Apparently, the the effects budget was raised by nine million in April of two thousand eleven. Was there a huge concern about the effects that required additional effects studios to be hired to bulk out this team? There, there always is. Visual effects studios tend to specialize in a certain thing, and if you want to get to get the best work, you have to piecemeal the work out to the people who specialize in what they're in. They have a specialty. If you have water, if you need to create water or something, you go to ILM. They have a very, very good reputation. I don't think it's always deserved, but um, but they're very expensive. They're all all these people are very expensive, more than they need to be. If you're doing compositing, Cinesite was the place. I don't know if they still are or not, but they tend to specialize in different things. Now the problem with Green Lantern was 
they couldn't decide. They agonized up to the 11th hour about whether the Green Lantern suit was going to be a real practical piece of wardrobe or whether it was going to be visual effects. They settled on visual effects. There's, the visual effects people are always pushing visual effects solutions to simple problems. And this movie would have been a lot cheaper and probably would have looked better if they had just gotten a suit, you know. And Ryan Reynolds has scenes in there with his shirt off. They have a whole scene in there where he's being scanned and he's practically naked and, and he was in great physical shape. There was no reason to augment his physique. But when you look at this movie, and I I looked at it last week in in advance of um, this discussion, um, you can see that they even enhanced his physique, you know, when he's wearing the suit. And I just thought that was completely unnecessary. As they did with Mark Strong, they enhanced his physique. Although Mark isn't quite Ryan Reynolds, you know, physique-wise. He's not bad. He's no, no, not at all. Mark has a slightly different body shape. That's all. Uh, but they've over enhanced him. I thought in this movie, and I just, um, I'm one of those people who's against visual effects enhancements when they're unnecessary. I had a meeting, my very first meeting with ILM, back in 1990, I want to say, and we were, we hadn't done a whole lot of visual effects stuff. We were about to do Memoirs of an Invisible Man, so we were going to do an invisible Chevy Chase in that movie. And I remember having a meeting with um, ILM, and they flat out told us, if you can do it practically, do it. It's always going to look better. And now two decades had passed between that conversation I had with ILM and when they did Green Lantern, so I'm sure the stuff, the techniques got better. The techniques are way, way better now. But that's just always been a common thing throughout my entire career is the visual effects people are always pushing for visual effects solutions to problems that can be done so much more simply and cheaper. Well, speaking of special effects, the initial trailer was released and apparently met very poorly with the uh, with the fans, which then resulted in the delay of the marketing campaign. And I've got a quote down here so from uh, Sue Kroll who was the uh, worldwide marketing president of Warner Brothers, and she put this down to not having any big-scale sequences or show in the trailer. Now, did this have any effect on the way that the trailers were provided for big effects-driven releases going forward? Um, no, not really, because um, the thing is, visual effects generally are done after principal photography, and people are clamoring for a teaser trailer even before you finish production. So you're always going to have a lag unless you kind of pinpoint, okay, this this is going to be in the trailer. Before you start shooting, you say, this is going to be in the trailer. You shoot it in the first two weeks or so, and then you send it off to the visual effects people to realize it. But you have to understand the director is working on the location. In this case, it was in New Orleans. He's not going to have a whole lot of time to divert his attention to go look at the trailer and stuff. So it's very, very difficult. So you need to plan this stuff way in advance, especially if it's a visual effects driven movie. The hardest thing on Superman was getting people to believe somebody could fly. I mean, that was the big thing back in Warner Brothers. I wasn't with Warner Brothers in 1978, but but I had spent time at the studio because I would go to screenings and I knew people there. But that was the thing. And I think that became a tagline on one or more of the posters. You will believe a a man can fly. Yeah, I've seen that myself many times. But then in April of 2011, 
apparently nine minutes of footage debuted at the WonderCon event in San Francisco. It was met extremely positively by those in attendance. Uh, when news of this got back, was this a positive outlook for the studio in the same way that the Batman early trailer had done in, as early as 1989? Yeah, it was certainly um, uplifting. Everybody felt really good about it. I, I, and I remember when The Dark Knight went out to all the different places. I mean, everybody wanted a piece of The Dark Knight. And that was an incredible achievement by Chris Nolan. But yeah, certainly did. Yes, everybody was very optimistic about what would happen with Green Lantern. Well, on release, Green Lantern took in $21.4 million on its opening day, making it the number one movie. However... It was then greeted with a 66.1% decline on its second weekend. Uh, now, what was the talk around the water cooler at this time? Was the writing on the wall that this was going to be a costly flop for the studio, or did you still have hopes for it? <laughs> the next release we had was Harry Potter. Okay. I mean, that's... <laughs> so you didn't care, basically. <laughs> it was a case of, okay, next. No, no, seriously. This movie came out, and within two weeks, Potter came out. Okay, you needed to get Green Lantern. You need to get everybody that was going to see Green Lantern needed to see it the first week and a half or so, because you couldn't even get a screen after that because they were all booked with Potter. We we killed our own movie in a sense. Not that Green Lantern was going to have great legs, as they say, and was going to sustain through the rest of the year or something like that. But I think the dreadnought known as Harry Potter was was the next thing that came down the road. And my attention was steered towards that. I had an executive, Barbara Galbo, who was in charge of Green Lantern. And I had another executive, Elizabeth Arnold, who was in charge of Yogi Bear. And those those were two projects being done simultaneously for Donald DeLine. And I was busy with, with Harry at, at that time. That was my primary focus. And uh, But the other two movies were in very, very good hands. So I wasn't worried about it. But I can't tell you specifics about the release whatever, because I was busy. I was, my head was elsewhere. Well, word is that Warner Brothers were obviously expecting to make it into a big franchise. And uh, following the underperformance and, and the poor reviews that followed uh, in September of 2011, Warner Brothers uh, abandoned the sequel trilogy plans that they had. Do you recall any of the disappointments on the executive level at that moment, the moment the fate of Green Lantern was sealed? It was, um, it was very political, and it had a lot to do with Justice League because um, they were trying to get Justice League done in a big way. They went through different iterations of that. And then we were developing The Flash separately. Wonder Woman was on our production status report. Wonder Woman was looming very large. That was the Joel Silver version. I don't know if Joel was eventually... um, Sometimes these things are just on there. And as I was looking through my production status reports, you'd be amazed at at the films we were doing simultaneously. Our business model was that we put out 24 movies a year. So you have to have a lot of things in the pipeline, which is why rumors and stories get out about things that are happening in development, you know, like the Kevin Smith story, because we had all these holes to fill in our release schedule. There were constantly tweaking things like that. So some people think they're going to be doing a movie and they don't because we move in another direction. But I think Justice League had more to do with 
killing Green Lantern than anything. Why do you think that Green Lantern is derided more than any of the other movies that came out at the time, such as Catwoman or Jonah Hex, which were both equally losses for the studio? Um, but I, this is written down here. We have these questions that we that we come up with together, me and Andy. And it does say here, but Green Lantern, I believe, is a much better experience as a movie. I watched it again last night, and it actually is. It's yeah. it's kind of like all the pieces are there. Yeah. But they just needed just that little extra thing to just slot them into place properly. So why do you think it gets so much hate? <laughs> um oh man, what a loaded question that is. It's um <laughs> let me tell you. Jonah Hex is absolutely one of the worst things I ever did in my life. Warner Brothers needs to hang their head in shame on that. And that was mismanaged from the very beginning. Absolutely. We could do a whole half an hour just on Jonah Hex. And I will. Uh, because I have to tell you that Green Lantern is way, way better than Jonah Hex. And for reasons that I will not say publicly on in this forum, Catwoman is inferior to Green Lantern. Although there, there's some things about Catwoman that I, that I really, really like. But there's no way I can talk about that one without insulting a whole lot of people. Which was my big concern about this conversation because I was afraid I was going to insult a lot of people because I never liked Green Lantern. Now, I watched it last week. I watched it in two parts. I watched the first hour and it, because I didn't want to watch it, you know, so I put it on late at night. I watched the first hour and I was like, if I don't go to sleep right now, I, I'll end up watching this whole thing. So I turned it off and then I came back the next night and watched the rest of it. I wish I'd started it earlier and watched it the whole two hours because the movie is way, way better than what I remembered. It really is. It's yeah. way, way, way better than what I remembered. Um, the problem with Green Lantern is that there's too many villains. You know, Peter Skarsgård is a villain for, for too long. Instead of that, that big octopusy thing, you know, that is, is trying to take over the universe. Yeah, the parallax. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know the lingo. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but, um, big yellow octopus, it, space octopus. I, but I think it was a mistake on the execution more than the script. I think I think Martin made a mistake because uh, Tim Robbins is a villain there at the beginning. You don't really quite figure out what's going on with him, except that he's sort of this wealthy industrialist, and somehow all these problems have been caused by him. Yeah, you um, had Angela then, Bassett also. Yeah, uh, yeah. Amanda Waller. And, yeah, and, and I thought it was a stroke of genius to have her in there. It was great to see her. Great to see her in that costume and in that setting. You oh, know? I love Angela Bassett. I think she's oh, fantastic. Yeah. I, I, looking back, I just think that was a stroke of genius to have her in there. One of the things that was really, really well executed, I never viewed her as a villain. She was just a soldier who was following orders and had, who had a mission. Yeah, it probably would have ranged into the kind of sequels because the character she plays, Amanda Waller, is one of uh, the big villains of the DC universe, mm, uh, especially for the Suicide Squad, where she's played by Viola Davis nowadays, yeah. who's yeah. kind of made the character her own. So a lot of people kind of forget that Angela Bassett actually plays this character in a more kind of toned down version. Mm -hmm. And then um, Peter Skarsgård, you know, who was really, really good in this film, you know, and then he's a villain for too long. We, we couldn't, we were focusing on too many villains, I think. And I think that was a mistake that was detrimental to the experience overall. That's my personal feeling. I was drawn out of it because of the, uh, the suit. The suit just stood out for me. Every time you had a medium shot of Hal, you could see the part on his neck. 
how come there's no creases? How come there's no folds? How come there's no sweat on there? You know, well, because it's fake. I just thought that was a mistake. The actual fact of it being visual effects drew attention to it. And you never, ever want to do that. You don't want to draw attention to your visual effects because then you're going to start to see the flaws in it. Particularly the mask. I think the mask is probably worse than the suit because... That is... Yeah, yeah, it it is a major distraction. I think the reason the mask was a visual effect is because of the scene where Blake Lively, I, I don't remember her character's name, tells him to lose the mask and then it sort of like disappears. It dissolves in front of our eyes. And I have a feeling that they had the mask as a visual effect just for that one shot. Steven Spielberg shot all of, um, I'm trying to think of the movie now. (laughs) Schindler's List was shot in black and white because he wanted to do the scene with the red coat on that girl. I mean, seriously, you're going to do a whole movie in black and white for that. But dumber things have happened. You know, there, there sometimes are absolutely dumb reasons to do things in the movies. Green Lantern, I feel kind of bad that I've badmouthed this movie for a decade, and I really have. And there are a lot of people involved with this production that I really like a lot. I like Greg Berlanti a lot. He's a really, really good guy. I wish him all the success. Um, I, Ryan Reynolds is um, a really, really funny guy. And I think that's one of the things that's missing from this movie is the humor. There was humor in that script. When I read the script, I was reading humor in there. And maybe it's just me sort of inducing into it, you know, my own sensibilities. But the humor didn't really come across, even though Ryan Reynolds was making quips that were actually more witty than Sean Connery was doing James Bond, <laughs> you know? But a lot of the stuff was lost. And I can only think it was the direction or the editing. Stuart Baird, first class editor. I mean, we had Dion Beebe and Stuart Baird doing this movie. We had the, the entire crew were among the best people in the world. And I would include Martin Campbell in that as well. And I really like Ryan Reynolds. I'm looking forward to seeing the the, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. That is released this week? Yeah. Um, They had pre-screenings this weekend here in L.A. I missed it. I wish I had gone. Um, Last Thursday night they were doing it. Um, I'm hoping I might see it tomorrow. And mentioning also, Bill, about the lack of quips and stuff like that, how can you have someone like Taika Waititi in a role that is not comedic and have a really dodgy American accent? Was he putting on an accent? Because I, I wrote that in down some in my scenes, notes. <laughs> yeah, in some scenes he is putting on an American accent, and everyone knows Taika Waititi uh, and his accent. And now he's one of you know the most. They do now in the business. They know him now. Did they know him a decade ago? Uh, no, no, no. It he, he wasn't really until what we do in the shadows came along. But yeah. seeing him with this accent that he puts on in some scenes is really bizarre. And seeing him playing it straight and keeping the it comedy is. wound back. Is even well, it's formula, this, and this entire movie was formula. I mean, it, it fit the formula very well. Taiki, if it was 15 years earlier, that would have been Robert Downey Jr. doing that part, because that, that's the kind of part Robert Downey Jr. was yeah. doing in, in his early films. Do you see how they did his hair and everything and his, his um, wardrobe? It's like they, they called in and said, send over Robert Downey's wardrobe. Yeah. No, really. I, I thought that. That was the impression I had was that they were copying. Even at the time, I remember watching the dailies. Now, you guys have to remember, I was watching this, you know, coming into my office in 15-minute segments every day that they were in production. I was watching all this stuff. And um, I was disappointed even in even during production. I was not impressed with New Orleans. I think this was the first big film that we sent to New Orleans for the tax deal, to the Louisiana 
tax deal. Didn't care much for the locations. But I think a decade has done me well watching this again. And since since I've watched it, then I went online and I, I bought a previously owned copy of the 3D version of this. I want to uh, I want to see the 3D. And I think, I'm not sure, in my notes, I'm not sure who did the 3D. I'd have to go back and look at the end credits. But I know Prime Focus um, is in my notes. Prime Focus was a company that, that they were planning to do it. And I'm pretty sure they were the ones who did Clash of the Titans. I, I can't swear to that. I'd have to go back and look at my notes on that film. We'll also mention it here. Like you said, 10 years removed, I think has been kind to it, especially I've watched it again this week. And I found, even found it better than I originally experienced it. Uh, and I went to the cinemas to see it when it came out. And I've enjoyed it more this second time round, kind of mm. removed from, you know, obviously now we've had the, the Snyderverse and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is in full effect. And this is kind of just a, a standalone superhero movie as they kind of were back in the day, regardless if they had plans to kind of incorporate around. And I honestly don't think it is as terrible no. As people make out, it is. No, this is no, I agree. actually where it feels kind of almost like the original Iron Man. Yeah, in a sense, it it, it hits all the notes. Yeah, there's there's something underlying that's missing. It, it might be the whole case of too many villains in the kitchen, as they say. But on the script notes, it's, it's kind of really has everything to f- fill these characters out. Mm. You know, and he doesn't even become the Green Lantern until fifty minutes into this movie. No. You know, they spent a lot of time building up all of the kind of surrounding characters even his family kind of distant family his brothers etc all get really laid out characters and it's like they had this plan to really map out this whole structure over three movies to be honest i'm going to give it its due it's not as bad as remembered no it's like all the bricks are there and all the bricks are great but the cement wasn't quite mixed properly I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. It's a very good analogy. And we want to thank you, Bill, for delving into Greenland. I know you were very hesitant to do it when I first brought it to your attention to do it. <laughs> but it sounds like you've actually, you know, you've had a bit of an eye-opening experience and you've really plowed into your past research and we've uncovered a lot of things here that probably people didn't know. You know, and even though we didn't get a trilogy, we can always nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate! There you go. Not such a great segue, but hey, they're getting better and better. It so, worked. For Nominate 5 this week, as we have Bill with us, who's been an executive at Warner Brothers from 1990 all the way through to, I believe, am I right in saying it was 2013? No, uh, the end of I left the very end of 2011. Oh, 2011. Okay, but his shadow was still there until 2013. I bet. <laughs> so I have asked Bill to nominate five movies that are from the Warner Brothers time frame of when he was there that didn't get their due and deserve to be reevaluated. So this could be interesting. This, I think, this is going to be very interesting. So we're going to count backwards from five. So Bill. Starting at number five, what have you got for us? Uh, well, I didn't arrange them in any particular order. I just uh, no one ever does. No one does <laughs> movies. So um, just not one. that any one of these is better than the other, but uh, but I'll, I'll go along. So going backwards from the order in which I listed them on my notepad, Black Beauty, uh, directed by Caroline Thompson, 
It was the early 90s. I want to think 91, 92, 93, somewhere around there. Really, really beautifully made film. Fabulous cast and production crew. I don't think it got released at the right time of year for that movie. I think it deserves a second look. I think people should go back and look at that. And it's available. All these are available on video. Okay. So we've got Black Beauty at five. What's at number four? Innocent Blood. John Landis. John Landis, yes. A great movie. The girl who was in La Femme Nikita, I think, is in it. Yes, uh, I want to say, no, it's not Marianne Cotillard. Uh, it's... Um, oh, no. Oh, and... and um, I can picture it. Anne Perillard? Or yes, something like that. that's her. Yes, that's her. Innocent Blood. That's a very good film. And yes. If you haven't seen it out there, it's about a, a female vampire who only dines on, I think it's uh, gangsters or bad people. And this crime boss, played by the the fabulous Robert Legia, mm-hmm. uh, gets uh, bitten but not killed. So naturally, he turns into a vampire, and then suddenly it's uh, Anne Pirillard and uh, I always forget his name. Suddenly, Pittsburgh was never the same. Yes, <laughs> I might have to track this down because this sounds exactly the type of thing that my girlfriend would love. Oh no, it's a really this is, good. Film. It's a very good film. I, you will be very pleased, I think. If you're not, let me know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, I, Let I know when we cover the anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then. So what is going to be your number three slot? Number three is Rosewood. Brilliant. I saw this last year. John Singleton. John Voight is in it, and it pretty much mirrors the whole um, Tulsa massacre of uh, 1911 that uh, mm-hmm. that is very prominent in the news here in the U.S. right now. And interestingly... Uh, Paramount or not Paramount Technicolor had created a new process called the DNR process. It's, it's very useful in dark films, films that you know that mostly night shooting and stuff like that, and it, it enhances the color. And we went with it on Rosewood, and, and um, it's really, really well done. I'm pretty sure the DVD or the Blu-ray. I'm sure whatever is out there on the home video front was probably one of the DNR prints of Rosewood. Yes, and Steve, you'll like it because Ving Rhames is in it. Oh, I do like Ving Rhames. Okay, so number two. Number two, Practical Magic. Okay. Directed by Griffin Dunn. uh, It features Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman. um, Diane Weist. Diane Weist, Aidan Quinn. um, uh, There's a... um, Stockard Channing, I believe. Yes, she's in it. Yeah. There's another guy. There's a there's a gentleman in it who with a Eastern European name who then became uh, Goran Vishnik, something like that. Uh, he ended up on ER. I have actually seen this movie mm-hmm. a long time ago. This was, I think, 1998, if I'm right. Uh, it could be, yeah. Definitely after 97, before 2001. Definitely in that era, yes. Yeah. Great. Wow, you've certainly dug up some uh, films that probably a lot of us have forgotten about or not seen at all. And I actually came up with seven and not five. So <laughs> so two and I'm, a half. We, we haven't got be... the music for nominate seven, though. <laughs> well, that's too bad. Um, seven is a lucky number if, you've, if you're a Harry Potter fan. So it got two and a half. Two and a half would be, speaking of Harry Potter, Alfonso Cuarón's A Little Princess. I have seen this. I used to own this on DVD. A fabulous little film. It did horribly at the box office. The studio re-released it, thinking that perhaps they had done it at the wrong time, re-released it later in the year. And it um, didn't fare much better the second time around, but the studio really believed in this movie. 
And I think it helped to enhance Alfonso's career. Alfonso hadn't done very many movies before that as a director. Um, he had come up as a, an assistant director and then became a director in his own right. Okay, so we're going to go for number one, Bill. Come on. So, a good one. so I have number one, and then I have one that doesn't quite fit into this mold that, that I want to promote. Um, so number one would be The Iron Giant. Oh, oh. yes. another we love one, The Iron Giant. Another Such one a that, beautiful film. Another one that that didn't perform um, as expected at the box office, and we re-released it. Brad Bird did it. And what a delightful person Brad Bird was to work with then. I'm sure he still is. I, I saw him uh, last year or the year before, two years ago. I saw him two years ago up at Skywalker Ranch. He was sitting by himself having breakfast or lunch or something, and I went over and... and um, I told him who I was and uh, reminded him of the Iron Giant and how delightful it was to work with him. And I was so glad for his success. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. So what's the minus one? The minus one is a movie that doesn't really belong on this list. And more, not just because it's number seven, um, but because it actually did really well at the box office. But um, I would just like to remind people to see this movie. Okay. The Pelican Brief. Oh, mm. you, you always mention this movie. You bring this up quite a lot. Yeah. Well, that's because um, with all the controversy right now with Supreme Court picks and stuff like that, I keep saying to people, we need a Pelican Brief moment right now in uh, <laughs> in this country. Uh, Alan J. Pakula did that. Julie Roberts. I, I have absolutely no objection to Julie Roberts. I know she rubs some people the wrong way. I've done several films with them. She's delightful to work with. Um, she brings something to everything she does. Some good, some bad. You know, she's she's quite good in this. John Hurd is in this. Sam Shepard. And a very early piece of work by Stanley Tucci. Wow. And of course, Denzel. Denzel. Oh, Denzel's fabulous in this. Uh, Robert Culp is in it. Uh, Tony Goldwyn. Um, a lot of people that you will recognize. And, and this is... Um, this this movie did it very very well when it came out, but it deservedly so because it's a very very good movie and you should see it. And it is a John Grisham novel, right? It's based yes. on the John Grisham novel, which obviously yes. Warner Brothers has very good relationship with uh, John Grisham movies, especially around this period. Well, that is a fabulous nominate five and two offs. <laughs> We're not writing a new theme tune. But we'll, we'll let you off with this one for cheating because we near, we actually got the countdown on point this week. But yeah, we Bill did. had to throw in the spanner in the works and totally diffuse us. This is like nine weeks running. One week. One week we will actually get it right once. Well, to be honest, Jay Oliver does a nominate five. He actually did get the countdown right. Mm-hmm. So I know. <laughs> it's well, you're always going to have um, a hard time with me. I have so much to say. And I talk over people. I apologize for the amount of editing you're going to have to do. But that's that's part of the cost of having me on. <laughs> we know. You're we not know. going to get this much information from anybody else. That's the thing. You are a fabulous guest to have on every single time. We always learn something amazing whenever you come on. And these are the kind of stories and the information that people should be talking about on podcasts instead of, oh, what was it like to work with her or him or... Or this side or the other. This is where we get the facts, which is what people really need. And there's a fascinating story here behind Green Lantern that we've heard today. And in revisiting it, you know, we've we've discovered it's not actually as terrible as it's made. Yeah, out. you made a discovery, yeah. as as did I. 
yeah, as did right. I. Um, I'll let you know what the 3D looks like when the 3D arrives. I, I bought it from a, an Amazon seller. I don't know when it's going to arrive. It, it, they sent me an email telling me it had shipped. Um, something is arriving from Amazon today in my house, but I don't know what it is. I, I have that Amazon Alexa, uh, Alexa, and it tells me when packages are coming. So maybe, maybe this is coming. Well, well, then, in that case, you need oh, to tell us what's in the box. You swine! <laughs> what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? You absolute <laughs> bastard. I was going to go for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get up early in the morning to beat me on that one. <laughs> And as soon as he said Amazon, it was like, I've got yep. my segue. I was the exact oh. same. Oh, <laughs> dear God. So anyway, what's in the box, Steve? Okay, well, what's in the box? Um, well, I think you probably might know this, Bill, because I think you've been listening in to, to the show. But what's in the box is a segment of the show where Andy picks out a movie from a box which is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes in an attempt to improve my movie education. If I have seen it, it just gets put to one side and we pick another one out. But if I haven't, then that is the movie that I watched the day before we record the next episode. I think I gave you what's in the box. I gave you seven. I gave you seven. The last one, I think, <laughs> should be what's in the box. Oh, well, two in the box. Two in the box. I still owe uh, Gillian Hutchings to watch uh, Nightcrawler, which I still haven't done. She's going to hate me for not watching it's, that. Well, it's in the box. It all comes down to the choice, and we never know. So we're going to reach in here. What is the first film that is pulled out? I have a feeling that you may have seen this. It is Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. <clears throat> You've not seen it, have you? No, but I saw the remake. What remake? Joker. There's no remake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well. No, I haven't seen Taxi Driver. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, wait, no. No, 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 no. Tell a lie. I did see it when I was, like, about 17. I think I saw, like, about the second half of it. I don't think I've seen the whole well, thing. Well, if you've though. seen the second half, now you've got to watch the whole thing. We're not playing what's in half of the box. We're playing what's in the box. You've got to actually go and watch this movie now. All right, but this is going to be one hell of a good choice. Oh, yeah, it's it's generally ranks up there. What do you think of Taxi Driver, Bill? Are you a fan? Um, not really. I I saw it before it came out. Um, I was I was still in university. Um, I was at Temple University in Philadelphia in the film program, and producers they were taking it to various universities around our film schools uh, because they wanted to generate some word of mouth. They knew that it was going to be controversial with the, the violence, specifically the violence, but the whole idea of the teenage prostitute sort of thing. Um, so they were trying to generate word of mouth. It was a word of mouth screening, which they still have. The studios still do that. So they get, they just want to get people talking about these things. So I saw it and it, it was devastating. It was, um, I, I didn't, I, I w my ears were ringing at the end. I didn't know what to think. I was just stunned by, by what I'd seen and all the violence and everything. It was um, it was quite an experience, and it wasn't a pleasant experience for me. But I tell you, there's that one scene where Martin Scorsese. Wait, 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 wait. We're not gonna. Well, let's not ruin it for Steve, who hasn't seen it. We're gonna get his feedback next week. Okay. Well, there's Did one scene in there I really, really liked that I thought was extraordinary. Okay, and we we want to know what that is. So you and can you know let what it, know. Well, I've already said so you know what it is, right, Andrew? Um, 
I have a feeling I might know. Is it in regards to a passenger oh, that is a famous director? Yes. Yes, it is an amazing scene. He'll yes. he'll love it. Oh, such cloak and dagger. <laughs> secrets, secrets, and whispers. That's all I'm well, getting. Well, the thing right now. was, it was quite a surprise for us to find out who it was because um, this particular person wasn't a household name at the time. He has become one, and then you will instantly recognize who it is. But I had to be told who it was. Is it Spielberg? No. Well, you're gonna no, have no, to no. Just this go is watch not, the this movie. This is not a guessing game. You have to let art <laughs> flow over you. Okay. All right. Bill went and did his homework this week. You go and watch your goddamn movie. <laughs> Bill, I spent hours. I spent hours doing homework for you guys, <laughs> and we really well, do appreciate it. We do, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this week on Potterwood. We look forward to having you on again. Obviously, when another anniversary of uh, our Warner Brothers project that you've worked with is coming up, well, there are quite a few up this year, so we may have you on recurring. Well, just next week, in the next week or two, there's going to be Harry Potter, <laughs> Deathly Hallows. <laughs> there. There is, there is. There's Harry Potter coming up. There's a couple of Harry Potter anniversaries this year, actually. So, for this week, as I say, we thank you, Bill, for coming along. Thank you, Steve, for, you know, being on time. Well, it makes a change. Makes a change. And, well, go on, sign us out. Okay, everybody. I have been Steve Hester. He has been Andrew Roger Carson. And we've had Bill Daly, so goodbye. (laughs) 